This is the Child Welfare Information Gateway Podcast, a place for those who care about strengthening families and protecting children. You'll hear about the innovations, emerging trends, and success stories across child welfare, direct from those striving to make a difference. This is your place for new ideas and information to support your work to improve the lives of children, youth, and families. In protecting children with safety and permanency, the policies and language have shifted to recognize most children fare far better with their own family, and reunification should be a primary goal for those who experience foster care. But are our actions living up to those policy and language changes? Welcome into the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast, everyone. Tom Oates here. Now, those shifts in policy stem from data that points to children who return to stable, loving families and homes are more likely to succeed in school and and social settings, maintain connections to siblings and extended family members, along with keeping those connections with traditions and and their cultural identity. So while June is Reunification Month, just like National Adoption Month, National Child Abuse Prevention Month, and National Foster Care Month, The month itself is used to celebrate the work performed all year round. And so this is as good as time as any to discuss reunification at a deeper level and how to help communities walk the talk a bit better when it comes to reunifying families. Now, if you are not familiar, the American Bar Association's Children on Center and the Law established Reunification Month more, more than a decade ago. Mimi Laver helped establish the event, and she's one of our guests on this episode. So for more information, you can visit AmericanBar.org and search National Reunification Month for their their reunification heroes, the personal stories of parents, professionals, and youth that the ABA Center on Children and the Law recognizes for their work to keep families together. There's also a number of other resources they have on that page for National Reunification Month over at ABA's website. website. Scott Trowbridge is also a part of our conversation. Scott is a child welfare program specialist with the Children's Bureau within the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Administration for Children and Families. Now, Scott has a deep connection to Reunification Month, as his background also includes working with Mimi at the ABA. Scott has a unique perspective of both the federal government and its programs and policies and the private and nonprofit sectors as they merge together to support reunification. And we're also joined by Chauncey Strong. Chauncey has nearly 30 years professional experience in child welfare administration, specializing in foster care and adoption training, along with being a caseworker, a manager, and a supervisor. Chauncey Strong is also an alumnus of foster care being separated from his family when he was five years old. This is a powerhouse trio, and we're so happy to have the chance to bring them all together for this conversation. So let's get right to it. Mimi Laver, Scott Trowbridge, and Chauncey Strong on shifting our actions toward reunification here on the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. Chauncey, Mimi, and Scott, guys, I thank you so much for your time and and welcome you in to the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. And guys, let's just kind of get right to it. Um, you know, reunification is has clearly been identified as a priority, as the primary prevention goal. But I'd like to get into the actual application and and, and ask, is reunification 
really front and center when we start talking about child welfare practice today? Well, so like like you you've led in, you know, next to prevention, reunification is the primary goal in law, and in in those two outcomes, prevention or reunification are the main outcomes we get if you come in contact with the system. So, but I think they're not where we want them to be, and so a little more on that is, you know, we do we do prevention. So, looking at 2019 data are the the ones that are easiest for you to find if you want to look up anything I'm saying here. You know, we have referrals to child protection, like eight million children involved, and 250,000 entered care, and we do reunify. But the reasons to think that it could be faster and a higher percentage. We, you know, we're just under half the cases that reunify, and the length of time is averages around 20 months. The reasons you, you would think it might be higher and faster, I think, you know, 64% enter for neglect. Physical, sexual abuse are nowhere near that. They're barely, they barely reach the double digits in, in most places. And Neglect's a broad category, and there's certainly cases in there that have very challenging safety risks. Um, but when we dig into the data, when we get down to more of a case level, and we, we see too many things that are, are fixable if we had the resources. So easier said than done. But contextualize that with um, one in six children in the U.S. live in poverty. And... So I, I think a question that we, we always have to ask of our, ourselves is, are we entangling poverty and neglect? And in reunification, are we moving the goalposts once the children are in care? Chauncey, I'm curious to start with you about, you know, where, where, where Scott is talking about, you know, the data that truly tells us the story. But when it comes to reunification in practice and, and, and what we're looking for, where are we seeing the biggest gaps Especially, I know there there are going to be gaps in age groups, and there's going to be gaps in in you know you know practice application as well. When it comes to what you've seen, where are those biggest gaps that we see in terms of the desire for reunification and the actual you know efforts that lead to it? Thanks, Sam. First of all, glad to be on the podcast with you all. Glad to talk about this uh, really just a great subject. And as far as I'm concerned, in terms of reunification. If I think about uh, gaps, there's a number of different things that come up. Uh, one would be, um, you know, I think, Scott, you said it well in terms of sometimes there's a moving of the goalpost, that the young person came into care for this particular reason, but then um, we start adding on things to why the child can go home. And so right away that becomes a gap because the, the family almost can never reach the, reach the goal. The primary reason maybe has been uh, mitigated. There's no issues any, any longer, but now we've added one more thing, whether it's transportation or whether it's job or whether it's, you know, who's living in the home. Um, but I think by far the biggest gap that I've seen would be the services that are available um, when young people are removed, services to the family. So what are the resources that the family will need, the parents will need to have the child return home? So whether that's um, substance abuse services, whether that's housing, transportation, domestic violence services, whatever those services are underlining the issue that the child was removed. Again, being careful not to then add on additional things, right? So, but the issues that where the child was removed, what is being done to address those issues? And more times than not, a lot of services are focused on the child. 
which is where it should be, especially if there's an issue of safety and neglect. It should be focused on the child, but in order for that child to return home, and, and this is where I think sometimes uh, those of us who've been in foster care, it seems like it's our fault that we've been removed, where more times than not, it's not our fault. So, but all the services goes towards us versus the services to the family that the reason I was removed because what was happening in my home. And that's where the services also needs to be focused. So case management specifically for the family so that the children can return home. And if I could just add, Tom, um, I think all too often we sometimes in the system put our own maybe middle-class values on families. And that's just not okay. Family is family and children want to be with their family. They thrive in their own families. Data shows that children who are removed have worse outcomes than children who are similarly situated um, that stay at home. And so I, I think we really need to have sort of a change of hearts and minds about how we think about family. Um, and family are the people that that love their children the best um, and want to raise their children. And when we um, see families who are living in poverty, but there is absolutely no safety risk, children shouldn't be removed. Or if there is a safety risk and we can support the family and have the safety risk mitigated, and there are issues such as um, there's not enough bedrooms in the house, or there's not enough beds, or there's not a dining room table. And I literally heard that story recently. Um, we need to get beds in a dining room table so that the children can go home because eating at a table compared to eating uh, in the living room is not a safety issue. And so we really need to support families with what they need, but not more than what they need. Families don't need surveillance. Families don't need regulation. They need to be supported so that they can safely love their children. Um, and I think that's why uh, reunification, getting back to your original question, reunification should be the foundation of our practice. And it is hard for me to believe that under half of the children reunify when we know what we know um, about trauma. We know what we know about children wanting to be with their families and thriving in their families and parents wanting to support those children so that the whole family um, can flourish in community together. You know, this reminds me when we were talking before we started recording, um, you, I believe it may have been you, Mimi, had mentioned, you know, wanting to even, you know, steal is the wrong word, but really adopt you know, uh, excuse the pun, from Adopt uh, Adopt US Kids and National Adoption Month, the phrase, you don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. And it's the applications that we provide, you know, hearing the fact that, that um, you said, you know, the difference between eating dinner in the living room versus eating dinner at the dinner table, if that's your focus, then you're clearly not focused on eating dinner with your family versus eating dinner alone or in a place that is just strange. Uh, and just even thinking about that, just imagine the anxiety that you that you know any young person would go through. Um, but you talked about winning hearts and minds. Um, and, but it's also some of these things about like, hey, let's establish the guidelines, let's establish the policies, um, or really kind of get this out in the open and talk about changing in practice. So I'll open this up to, to, the, to the three of you and ask, so what's being done then, as we take a look at this from the federal, from the national level, to support this shift toward you know, stressing reunification within child welfare practice? Yeah, well, it relates, of course, to the, the reasons to focus on it. And, and I think the continuing focus on safety is, is one of the things that you see at a, a federal um, 
state level. And you know, the statute hinges on safety for these decisions we're talking about. And again, like like Mimi, like we were all saying about you know poverty is in itself unsafe. Um, we have biases there, and so it goes it goes you know it goes to the decision making that we bring to it. And then we have the resource issue. But the I think part of the frame in understanding that is thinking of um, think of the model of foster care, not of we're going to keep the child in foster care until we can send them home and trust that everything's going to be stable. That's another sort of way that the goalposts get moved, and that you know you can understand that that feeling and rationale, but you have to think of foster care as getting the child home when we put the we can put the fire out, and that's long before we're feeling like the fire is not going to reignite without services. We get the child back home, and then we continue to work with the family um, once the immediate fire's out, so that we can feel comfortable that it's not going to reignite night again but that can be done intact with a lot of our cases a lot more than from you know when we dig into the data than we think we're at and another one and you know i'll just kick this off as a topic and maybe pitch it to mimi but strengthening legal representation i just it's i before law school i worked for a child welfare agency and the ask of the agency to come in there and make decisions about a best interest um, trying to serve the whole family, you sort of have multiple clients. With all the best training and the best intentions, you are still substituting your judgment and your expertise for the expertise and the knowledge of the family um, and the community. And so there's a lot of power in that legal representation to make sure we're centering the voice of the, the youth and the parents. There's power to have that debate about reasonable efforts in case-by-case -case basis. So we can all make the best decisions. Well, Scott and Tom, I'm so happy that Scott raised um, legal representation. And I was a little bit surprised that he didn't mention what um, the federal government has done to support high quality legal representation. So I'm gonna share a little bit about that and, and talk about the relevance of high quality legal representation in reunification. Um, and it is, I think, an exciting time to be a lawyer who wants to do um, the best possible work to lift up the voices of youth and um, parents. And, and in part, that's because um, the federal government is now allowing states for the first time to draw down federal dollars for legal representation. And this is a huge move. It happened a couple of years ago, and states are rolling that out and trying their hardest to figure out how to make it happen. Uh, I think we now have about half of the states working on pulling down that money and hopefully other states will follow suit. But it means that the power imbalance between the child welfare agency's legal representation and that of the child and the parents can now be more equalized. That we now have resources to put into what I call high quality legal representation. It's a term that many of us are using. But if you're not a lawyer and you have never heard that term, it might sound like jargon. And so I wanna talk for a minute about what we mean when we all say high quality legal representation. We mean lawyers who um, are paid a reasonable amount of money so that they can specialize or really focus on representing parents and children. We mean lawyers who have a caseload that's reasonable so that they have time to work outside of the courtroom with their clients. Uh, we also mean what another jargon term, multidisciplinary legal representation, but teams of lawyers, social workers, and people with lived experience um, to provide holistic 
representation for parents and children. And we're finding, and there again is research to show that when um, families have, when parents have that kind of representation, outcomes for their children um, improve drastically. So children return home and they return home sooner and they return home just as safely as if the children stayed in care longer. So um, legal representation is a key because it really provides the parent the opportunity to be um, supported in child welfare agency meetings, in courts, and to access what they need, what services they actually need. Um, another piece of what Scott was saying is the family first legislation um, that allows reunification services to uh, occur for 12 months after the child is returned. That is a shift in the amount of time that parents can access the services they need. It doesn't mean that all parents need services for that long, but the child welfare agency can access, again, resources that can help support families um, for a year after they return. And so, um, like Scott was saying, we could send children home when it's safe to do so, but still be able to support the family and not worry that something is going to happen when, when uh, they're not engaged with the system. And those services can be provided in community. It doesn't need to be happen happening just by the child welfare agency uh, where there may be some trust issues. Those services can be provided in the communities that families live. Um, going back to legal representation for a minute, another amazing thing that's happening is what people are calling pre-petition or pre-removal legal representation. And that goes to prevention, um, but I think is part of the continuum that we're talking about today um, of giving a parent a lawyer before the child's removed to handle those ancillary issues that we've been talking about, the housing issues, the education issues, the domestic violence issues, um, so that the child doesn't need to re be removed because we're mitigating um, the safety issue. And so um, for a long time, we lawyers have been talking about our own benefit, um, maybe a little too much, but I think we are in a time now where, where courts and child welfare agencies and lawyers are working together um, as a full system to support families, uh, not remove families when they don't need to be, but support them if they needed to have a separation um, and get those children home quicker. We're all taking our responsibility uh, as a community together. And that is pretty exciting. Maybe I just, I'm just saying again, when we talk about this uh, topic, the more excited I get about it. I think I just love what you talked about. And part of it is that working together. And a lot of times what happens in systems is that when we're not working together, you know, the children and families are suffering because we are fighting against each other, even though we have uh, many of the same goals. I, I just wanted to touch on a little bit, even from a state level, what's happening. And I was so excited um, to find out. Um, I've all, always heard of a foster care manager. I've always heard of an adoption manager and even a kinship care, a relative care manager. More recently, um, we've heard of two states now who actually have, uh, in Georgia, is called a reunification director and Oregon is called a reunification program manager. And when I first heard about it, I just was just overjoyed to hear that we're not saying that reunification, while it is a part of foster care, it needs the same level of attention that our foster care <laughs> needs as well as our adoption needs. And so, um, you know, talking to them and you, you'll see more of that on the reunification website. You'll be getting you can get find more information about uh, both of those positions. Specifically, we're highlighting the Oregon Reunification Program Manager where they're putting uh, services and they're putting staff and specifically to talk about how do we help young people reunify? How do we help them when they when they do reunify successfully stay in the home? And I think if you don't put 
attention to it, um, it might not get done. If it's, what is that saying? If it's everybody's responsibility, then nobody's responsible. But if you make it very specific that these these uh, program managers, these supervisors, these workers will focus on unification, you have a much better chance. So um, as someone who's worked in the state and just to hear that, knowing that that's out there, that's exciting to know. And I think they will have a better chance of reunifying some of our young people with positions like that in place. Thanks, Chancey. I am so excited about what's happening in Oregon and Georgia also. Um, but I wanted to comment what something you said just made me think that maybe I misspoke a little bit. Um, that I agree with you that it's really important that the whole community is working together. And um, and I, I think that we all need to take responsibility for supporting families. Um, I think we really need to be lifting up the voices of people with lived experience, meaning parents and youth and kinship providers. But I also want to remind people that we are in an adversarial system for a reason. And sometimes not everybody's going to get along. Um, and I think that's okay too, right? That I think that that lawyers and their teams can play a role in holding child welfare agencies accountable, or um, a child's attorney can help uh, support a parent and, and uh, work with the parent's attorney. And, um, and sometimes they'll clash. And that's okay if everybody is keeping their eye on the prize of keeping families together. Um, and so I don't want any of my lawyer colleagues out in the country saying, Mimi, do you think collaboration means we all have to get along all of the time, which sometimes that's what that C word um, stands for in people's minds. And that's not what it means. It means that on a system level, we're all going to work as a team to figure out the best policies and practices. But that case by case, if we need to do a little bit of adversarial advocating, that's okay to get the clients what they really need um, for their families. Scott, go ahead. So that also just reminds me of another thing that we're doing to support and all of this is there's going to come out very soon uh, a very in-depth uh, package uh, looking at all the research done on hearing quality. So some of this, you know, the way this gets operationalized is that, you know, if we go into court and there is there are some different perspectives that need to be uh, digested and a decision has to be made, um, you know, our some of the, you know, from the basics of, you know, is there enough time to hear from all the parties for the judge to make a, a, a good informed decision to, to, um, you know, upstream things of the preparation and the judge's training and the judge's, you know, uh, the, the knowledge or backgrounds that they bring. So that's something that's come out soon. And it's, it's an area where, um, we've, we've had a lot of research, but it hasn't been sort of packaged as a conceptual model as a compendium so that's another way we're trying to support and that ties into a lot all the different things we've talked about from the safety decision making to the um involving uh, a wider net of of people um on the legal teams and on the um agency teams it's you know you guys bring up and thank you guys for really adding the the legal perspective when it comes to also collaboration because there is so much and I'll make sure to um, on this episode's webpage head on over to childwelfare.gov of course we'll have links to National Reunification Month over from uh, the American Bar Association we'll also have a link if you if you talk about collaboration with the three of you guys in a recent we uh, webinar you guys had about while focusing on National Reunification Month it really supports 
course, those foster care managers uh, and taking a look at, well, what do you do not only during the month, but how do you extend it and how do you kind of make it front and center uh, in folks' minds? Also, when you discussed collaboration, that there is also collaboration happening from the foster parent and birth parent uh, side of things where you're seeing caseworkers or advocates, uh, you know, parent partners working together to kind of maybe break down that adversarial role to say, hey, you know, the goal of this foster parent isn't to take the, you know, your children away from you, but to work with you or to get you're, you know, as you get ready, we'll get ready, you know, and, and everybody's goal is the same. Uh, and that's happening out in California. So there's a couple of publications. There's actually a recent podcast uh, we, we did in focusing on, on the birth parent uh, foster relationship and the mentorship uh, that happens. So head on over to childwelfare.gov. And, and on this episode's webpage, we'll have links to, to all of that. So, Tom, I want to add a couple of things, uh, because I think we're having a great conversation about reunification, but I, I think we really need to be explicit about who are the families that we're talking about. Uh, we've been talking around it a little bit, uh, but we all know that that um, Black, Brown, and Indigenous families are overrepresented in our child welfare system, that we don't honor the cultures that these families come from historically, uh, and even currently, I don't think that we do a great job of including um, the elders of the tribal communities in child welfare decision-making. I don't think that we give enough credence necessarily to the supports that families have in their extended family. Um, and I know we've talked a little bit about that, um, but I, I, you know, I, I think that the, the service providers and supports to use um, Scott's words that are in um, black and brown communities can be, we can shine a spotlight on them and they should be there to support the families. And we really need um, to acknowledge that we all have a lot of work to do from a race equity lens to ensure that we no longer um, make the decisions that we've been making historically to remove more black, brown and indigenous children and to keep them in foster care longer because of the way we view their families. And I just, um, you know, as we're celebrating reunifications, we also just want to um, be sure that we're not causing separation unnecessarily and we are celebrating the reunifications that happen as quickly as possible uh, for the children who are overrepresented in our community, in our system. This this is really an area where you know we can learn from child welfare practice in tribal communities, and I, I think they're they're often farther along in conceptualizing culture as protective factor and you know, cultural events and the cultural connectedness of um, you know broader community in in problem solving. And you know you see this if you if you do any work around Indian Child Welfare Act cases or just in you know cases that originate in the in the tribal court or child welfare system. I guess one of the things I want to make sure that I add into this conversation is the is the whole issue around, you know, start thinking about who are the young people that are reunifying. Um, so you then you go back and you say, well, we already know there's an overrepresentation of people of color, of children of color in the system, but are they the ones actually reunifying? And some of the data shows that no, even though they're overrepresented, when you look at young people, and especially if you look at, you know, and, I, and I'm very, I'll be real specific here, young men of color 
who come in at 13, 14, 15, they are on an, uh, on a track that's around independent living and aging out of the foster care system. It, they're, they're, you know, if you look at that, that's a, a, a population of people that say, okay, they're too old to be, uh, to go back home or to be adopted or they're too aggressive or they've been in these residential settings. And so you start looking at that young, young men of color, especially, are not going home, are not being reunified. So, you know, we we do a disservice in a lot of ways if we don't talk about that issue and continue to highlight, we want all young people to return home. Uh, and maybe if there needs to be some specific focus on uh, children of color to make sure that we're not doing something just even unintentionally, because I always feel that I, I wanna believe the good in man, right? That it's not that we're intentionally doing things to hurt people. Now, there are some people who are, but the majority of us are not intentionally doing it, but even unintentional harm is still harm. And so we still need to go back and make sure that, you know, our young people of color don't automatically get, and in foster care, we say, we say this a lot of as alumni, the label that's put on us right away, unadoptable, we can't be returned home, too aggressive, all those things. And the, and the majority of the time is young people of color and specifically young men of color. So, you know, I think it's important that we continue to wave that banner, continue to shine a spotlight on that, that that's going to be important for us if we're going to truly have reach reunification. And, and going back to the numbers, at the numbers that we should have them, we need to look at the people who are the young people who are in care the most and the longest, and that's those of color. And so um, I'm just glad that we we, we're not going to miss that point in this webinar. So, yeah, thank thank you guys for 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 taking us down a path that we need to continue to to, to walk and 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 bring that to the forefront of these conversations. I want to get back toward some of the the policies and processes. And so, Scott, you know, how are those? Maybe you know, for some jurisdictions, some states, but how are those current systems? Uh, set up in a way that may not be the best to support reunification. So we, we hinted at this before, but again, I think we have to remember that we have mandatory reporters. And the agency, if you look at reasonable efforts in a way, is a mandatory supporter. But um, for some things, what you really need is a network of service providers. Um, and those service providers are not under that same you know, statutory scheme where they're going to lose funding if they don't provide a service. Um, I don't want to sound pessimistic, but I think one of your other questions comes, uh, comes back to why, you know, I don't, don't want that to be a barrier when you think about that. But another, um, just another follow-up on, you know, the way, the way systems are set up right now that you know, uh, Mimi had already addressed is, you know, the for legal representation option that more states and a couple tribes have 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 already, have already billed for and invoiced for and many more in the process of the policies and so more of the process. Um, a, a lot of the attorney systems are are you know very county based and and they're they can you know be somewhat isolated and not not have this network of support or supervision or you know training set up. So you know of course we we do fund some things for that. For the court improvement program, um, and the for legal rep can take care of a lot of that day to day high quality legal representation. Um, but it, until until that option is really hitting full steam, that's another way processes are not set up to you know, really have the support or the pay for attorneys or the you know time for work out of court to support this. And I mean, the other thing that uh, it makes me think of also is sort of. 
you know, while the 4E legal rep can support all the things connected to that, that 4E process directly, another thing we're seeing with the court improvement programs piloting is, is more holistic like representation. And so what I mean by that is you're looking outside or the tertiary things that, you know, landlord tenant, special immigrant juvenile status, special ed appeals, for example, that, that affect the child welfare case outcomes, but uh, might not be directly. So that's something that seemed very new 10 years ago. And then we're seeing it in a lot of places now. And uh, CIPs are supporting that and other states and counties are supporting that tribes are looking at that too. So Scott, you know, did put on a bit of a, uh, you know, you mentioned there is some pessimism in that, but if it's okay, and, and maybe I'll, I'll throw this to you to talk maybe a bit more about the optimistic side. And because we do know that, you know, there are communities that are making moves toward reunification, um, even in the light of of our continued social distancing and dealing with a pandemic. So I'd, I'd love to give you the opportunity to think about, you know, for those communities that want to push more or that want to make that mind shift or that want to you know, look at their policy and say, hey, what do we need to do differently? Are there any examples that you've seen where communities are making moves toward reunification and, and seeing improvements? Sure, um, I like to be the optimist. Um, so I, I think there's two practice areas beyond the legal rep and, and believe me, legal rep is uh, one of my passions. And, um, but I think in, states that are looking really concretely at their visitation policy and at their resource parent policy, they are starting to see some shifts. And again, in addition to all the the court work. Um, And Tom, a few minutes ago, you were talking about uh, foster parents and parents working together. And um, in my mind, the places that are doing it well and are shifting to what they're calling resource parents um, as caregivers, I think that shouldn't just be a semantic change. I think that's really an important change of of way of process and and policy and practice is really empowering caregivers, whether they're kin caregivers or stranger caregivers, um, to be resources for the whole family and um, have the parents over for birthday parties and include the parents in uh, the dental appointments for the children and the education. Um, meetings. And of course, parents have the right to do those things, but all too often they're canceled out of the child's uh, relationship and the foster parent takes over. But I think in those communities, and you mentioned California, I want to think about Washington um, and a number of other places. And again, on the Reunification Month website, we highlight that resource parent um, practice. People who really love the kids, but are there to support the whole family Um, I think that's a great practice shift. And then family time, often called visitation, is um, a real make or break for reunification. If a system continues with the old way of thinking where you get one hour every other week to see uh, each other in a sterile room, uh, and that of course is pre-pandemic, you're not gonna have great reunification outcomes. But if you uh, think more broadly, like Georgia has, Georgia changed their statute actually um, to make unsupervised visitation the default. Now, does that happen in every case? No, there are times where there may be a safety reason that the parent and the child need someone to supervise them. Um, But in general, that idea of going to an unsupervised, go to a park, go to a McDonald's, go wherever the, the child likes, a few times a week because you don't need uh, supervision. 
And then add in the um, child, the parent getting to go see the child's extracurricular activities and again, the medical appointments and those kinds of things. You're now mimicking family life. You could have visitation or family time in places that the kids and the parents like to do things at a bowling alley or during a church service or what have you. But it's really important that they have contact and that the siblings are all together um, with the parent and each other. And, and there are communities around the country that are focusing on not have visitation homes. Now, the pandemic, of course, threw a whole monkey wrench into this idea of in-person visitation. Um, in some places, appropriately so. Uh, but I think now we're falling back on this idea that virtual contact is the same as visitation. And now I, I'm not going to be an optimist. Um, I, that's not true. It is not true. Uh, virtual contact is just that. It's contact. And it's a way for parents and children to stay connected. And the optimist in me hopes that post-pandemic, we will hold on to that virtual contact so that, for example, parents can read their children a bedtime story every night virtually. But that doesn't mean that they don't see each other a couple times a week. Um, because, again, we know from uh, research that high-quality visitation is a huge marker of safe reunification. Um, so those are two practices and policies uh, that are intertwined and I think really important for reunification uh, that places are, some places are doing well, but there's lots of room for improvement. And I hope folks will really focus on those two areas. Yeah. Two, um, two grants that really speak to uh, Mimi's first point is that I, I reminded to mention are, we have the Center for Excellence in Foster Family Development, and that's implementing a model program for the support of resource families that she was mentioning to work closely with birth families for on reunification. And also the improving child welfare through investing in families grant is, uh, has some of those similar outcome goals, but is focusing on kinship preparation and kinship support for reunification. Scott, thank you. Um, and these are, you know, clearly practice implication, implications that somebody can do. You know, I, I, I love the idea of really treating virtual visitation as supplemental, as in you you have your regular face to face, but here's a way we can add to it where it's 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 quick to do. I mean, 15 minutes with your phone in your hand and you can be anywhere. So it can be just right when you're done with work or right before somebody goes to bed. Um, Chauncey, there's also an approach of of kind of opening your eyes and mind to thinking, what can we do, you know? Um, and so I'm curious to, to, to your thoughts on, you know, kind of that, those questions that, that maybe caseworkers or managers need to ask themselves to maybe, you know, open their minds uh, when approaching foster care and making sure reunification is the goal. Yeah, I think that's a great question, Tom. If, if you don't mind, I, I just want to share a little bit as I get into sort of changing the mindset. So I've been working in child welfare for 26 years. And so 26 years, either, either foster care, adoption, in-home services. Um, and I don't mean like I took a break and did that. No, 26 straight years of doing this. I've also, I was in foster care myself. I was adopted out of the foster care system. And um, to this day, I'm still reconnecting with birth families, with my, with my birth family, right? So but when I think about when I started 26 years ago, 
I can't tell you I knew how to spell reunification, much less was working on reunification. It just was not what we were doing back then. And that's not a fault of anybody that I was working with or any of that program. It was just not the focus. And so over time, there has been a shift in people's mindset about reunification. And I think for me, and I build on this a lot when I do a lot of trainings around around, uh, this topic, um, I think the biggest shift is the belief that young people can go home and that they should go home when it's safe to do so. And so I think if we get, we got to really think about our mindset, what do we actually believe about our young people and their ability to go home? And I focus a lot on our older youth because there is absolutely a mindset that once you come into care at a certain age, you're probably going to age out of foster care, meaning you're going to turn 18 or 21 and just leave the foster care system versus ever having a chance to go back home. Um, I do a lot of training on this. And so the topic that the, the saying that I use quite a bit is that um, you work to your level of belief. And if you don't believe a young person can go home, they probably won't go home under your watch. If the, if the judge doesn't make the young person can go home or the parent or the, um, the worker or the supervisor, more than likely they're going to be right because they're not even going to work to a level that's going to make it um, successful for that child to go home. So you really do have to change the belief and start believing that the children can go home. Now, how do we make that happen? Will that happen in every case because you believe? I'm not going to say that, but you have a much better chance if you believe it actually can happen. And so some of it is just about the power, I believe, the power of belief, and then looking at how do you move those services uh, into place. And so I think one of the things that, you know, that that's a that's a gap and you're seeing more and more of that. The only other piece I would throw in there that there needs to be a shift in terms of the mindset is that, and I say this all the time, again, 26 years, I have been to some awesome adoption celebrations. I mean, some of the best you've ever seen. And I and I'm I'm an adoptee. Yes, let's celebrate that. I've been to some of the best foster care um uh, celebrations where we fought, celebrate our resource parents, right? And that's awesome. I would love to continue, and we, they are going around across, across the country, and I want to see more reunification celebrations as well. When young people go home, and it's the first goal typically for most kids coming into care, we ought to celebrate that just like we celebrate anything else. And I think that that's a mindset that not only are young people going home, we're celebrating that because we know how difficult it can be for young people to return home. So those things feel, you know, the social worker in me, that's a little touchy feely piece of it. But I think that's important to have the right mindset that they can go home and they should go home with the, you know, we put the services in place. And then when they go celebrate and recognize the, the, the hard work that was put in place um, by the parents, by the family, by everybody involved for these children to be unified. So let me pull on that for a little while. Scott, go ahead. And something you said, Chauncey, just reminded me, I was talking to Judge Maldonado, who's the judge at Little Traverse Bay Bands earlier this week, and uh, she said something so well that's that I hadn't articulated this well myself, I thought, is that, you know, that children are not like potted plants. And sometimes we have this idea that we can take them from a shady spot and put them in a sunny spot and they're going to thrive. And humans just don't work that way. We adapt to imperfect situations and our psychological roots are just, are very hard to shift. And I, I just love the way she said that. So I wanted to throw that in in response. 
No, appreciate that, Scott, um, because it is that mindset of like, and that's really that gets back to what everybody was saying about the idea of what somebody's version of of you know safety, you know, a dinner table versus the family that's eating dinner together, right? Uh, it's 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 re repotting the plant. Uh, Chauncey, I want to follow up though. When you you know, yes, mindset and belief are are huge because it just won't open up any opportunities. You won't see them. So let's talk about like the actual execution, right? So somebody recognizes, and you said you know, working toward reunification. Well, it is work. So I'd love to get your sense from what you've seen of those common pathways to reunification that that communities can implement because we are at times talking about services and programs and instead of just focusing on the child but focusing on the community on on the family as well uh, what are you seeing that's working yeah i want to go back and uh, again this really shows to me when you think about the consistency of what we're talking about you know mimi already talked about this a little bit but i really want to highlight again this whole piece about uh, resource parents and uh, families of origin or birth parents working together um in Virginia, we did something what we called uh, bridging the gap um, and then using icebreakers, which was the first time families would work together. Uh, and specifically, you know, a lot of that work came from um, Denise Goodman's work and Annie Casey's work on this work. And we really started uh, an initiative uh, in Virginia, starting in Northern Virginia, where it was just um, the norm for these families to meet each other. Um, there's a, and, you know, just to give a little shout out to a couple of places that are really that's taking off. I don't mean you mentioned California, but, you know, in Virginia in Maryland, they're doing some good work around that. In Mexico has recently started doing some work um, and West Virginia has even had some work done around um, these icebreaker meetings. So it's there's a gap between the two parents and, and more times than not, it is unintentional. But we have set them up to be almost the enemies of each other. It's not intentional. I don't think it's but any ill will. But, you know, you know, a lot of time, even the language that we use. And and again, this is no knock on this language for people that resonate with, you know, we call our resource parents heroes and they're, and they're, they're heroes and they're saving their children. And then you got to keep thinking, OK, if they're the heroes, then who's the villain in this situation? And, and again, it's not intentional, but we almost have set them up, you know, and if they're heroes, who are they who are they saving them from? What are they saving them from? I think that there's a recruitment mindset that we need to be thinking about um, when we think about, you know, what can be done. We need to think about the messages that we are asking for our resource parents, that they are resource parents, right? And that our, our first goal is not for the little cute five-year-old or four-year-old or three-year-old to be adopted out of the foster care system. That's not our goal. Our first goal is for this child to be returned home safely. And your role is to try to help we're appropriate to work with that family to make that happen. So when you start talking about our partnership and when you start talking about collaboration and working better together, that needs to be part of our recruitment message for our families. And I think right away, then you will see, we'll continue to see differences. And again, there are some states that are doing a great job with it. And then of course, Mimi mentioned this, and I won't uh, reiterate this again, but the whole uh, visitation time, family time, people call it different things, but we're family quality time together can make all the difference in the world. Um, the last thing I've just most recently I heard of are things what they call comfort calls. The first time the child comes into care, there's a call between the parent and the uh, and the uh, resource parent uh, that gives some comfort to where that child is and that their child is safe. And then that leads you to icebreaker meetings. And so there's a, a nice progression about, again, encouraging and really um, strongly suggesting that these families work together and that has to start with even the mindset on 
who are we recruiting to be resource parents so that they know that's what it's really about. We're trying to make sure young people can return home safely when they can do so. And you have a role in doing that. Yeah. And that, well, you really you're setting the, the, the goal setting with the professionals, with birth parents and resource parents. And, and it is this, you know, it is a triumvirate and they are in a sense working together, whether they're all in the same room uh, or not. So Mimi, let me, let's talk about the, that, that trio, right? The, the, the parents and the professionals and thinking about those agencies that want to do more, want to be able to kind of structure this. Uh, and if there are any tools out there that are for parents or tools for professionals in helping support kind of working toward reunification from, from day one. Sure. And I really love uh, what Chauncey was just saying about the heroes and the villains. And I'm thinking about the us versus them. And part of it is really realizing that reunification, yes, it's foundational. And yes, it's part of our law, but it's also what's right. It's what um, makes the most sense for children and families. And so when we set up resource or foster parents to think of the family of origin as them, then we're setting them up to not want to work together. Um, but as folks have worked um, really hard, and uh, I'll point out the Birth Parent National Network has new tools on um, for resource parents and parents working together. And uh, the BPNN, as they're known, has uh, brought together with uh, in partnership with Casey Family Programs and others, they've brought together groups of resource parents and groups of parents to really work through the hard parts of this. What does it mean to overcome that us-them mentality? What does it mean for a parent to say, somebody else is caring for my child and I need to trust them? Um, and how could you possibly trust them if you don't know who they are? And from the resource parent point of view, um, how do you lift up and honor the parent if you don't know who they are? And so um, they've put together tools and they've done webinars. And on our website, we have a link to one of the webinars, but there's been many of them really talking through the nitty gritty, not just the Pollyanna up in the sky part, but how do you do the hard work of connecting families? Um, another place to look for tools is on our Family Justice Initiative website, FJI. Um, the Family Justice Initiative, the goal of that is um, that all parents and all children will have high quality legal representation when uh, courts are making decisions about their families. And so we have lots of tools um, for families and for lawyers uh, related to COVID, uh, related to high quality legal representation and what it looks like and what it what is required to make that actually happen um, in communities. And at the beginning of the um, pandemic, and, and there's an article on the FJI website about this, a number of communities got together, um, their parents' lawyers, their children's lawyers, their agencies and their courts, and they looked at the list of children that were in foster care to say, who could we get home right away? Uh, we know that this pandemic is going to disrupt lives. How can we get some children home right away and, and not worry about the trial home visit or the three extra overnight visits that were in the case plan? And in these communities, they sent home many, many, many children. And so I, I urge an ongoing analysis um, by communities of the list of cases that you're holding on to for just that one more visit or that one more, is are you really having um, safety concerns? And if not, return home with the children. 
Uh, we know that it can happen. We did it in an emergency. And now that we're starting to come out of the pandemic, of course, we're not totally out. Um, but as we're coming out, uh, this serves as, I think, another opportunity to just do some good digging in on the families that you're serving um, to think about whose children can return home right away um, to do the emotional work that needs to happen as people are reunited in this crazy time. Thanks, Mimi. And I'll make sure that uh, if you head again to this uh, this episode's webpage, we'll have links to the FGI and the, and the Birth Parent National Network uh, to to help folks access you know those tools that uh, that you were talking about. Uh, before before we wrap up, Scott, I want to bring back in the idea of you know for those folks in higher administration within child welfare agencies, uh, if you had an opportunity to sit down with them and just you know what would you think in terms of either what's out there or where, where this conversation and others are are going for guidance uh, for those jurisdictions and policymakers on maybe what they should take and and how that may differ from current approaches toward helping reunify families? Well, I'm going to twist your question because I I do have that opportunity and I do do that, but only a little bit. To say, you know, going back to where I said I might, maybe I don't want to come off as pessimistic, but I was trying to be responsive to your prior question is, again, about the services or supports that are needed, um, you know, when they're when there is a barrier that to get to that that point of safety, um, we support a lot of this at Children's Bureau, and but uh, more of that is at the the state level, and we we work on all these things we've talked about. But let me twist your question to say nothing's stopping you at the county level. Again, you have the mandatory supporters that need this network of supports, but don't assume that those service providers know. Tell them, you know, we are traumatizing families because of lack or delays in services. Reassess priorities as a team. Another stat, uh, you know, that that troubles me is, you know, 10% of our cases came in in the 2019 data for housing-related issues. And, you know, you don't even have to do the math. I mean, if we're putting a kid in foster care, traumatizing a family over housing, even taking all of the humanity out of it, the 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 amount of cost you know we're putting on the system versus uh, assisted for housing is it's not even close. You don't even have to. You could do a cost benefit, but it's not close. Um, you know, another you know, organize around your data is 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 one way to start. And you know, another one that comes up a lot is you know, substance abuse. But then you know, in a lot of places. You know, we we know it's opioids, and we know there's medically assisted treatment, and yet I think we we see anecdote after anecdote of ignoring the the science around the medical assisted treatment, and really you know going for this this outdated um, approach to that. And I said services and supports because I you know because it's not just services. Sometimes, you know, for one example. Uh, is social isolation is is sort of it's a predictor and it's something that um, you know we have this adage that it takes a village to raise a child and you think about you know what what would I do if I have an emergency my sister lives down the road and she's a, a safe person school teacher and my you know friend uh, lives a few miles away and you know I have in laws and everybody within you know emergency distance to get to me and. We have a lot of families that in our system that made one mistake, and, but didn't have that network to to mitigate it. 
Um, so sometimes we have to build those villages around whether, you know, we, we have, you know, relatives or fictive kin for placements, but they can do so much more. And if you don't have those, maybe it's a faith community, maybe it's just neighborhood. Um, you know, thinking about the family is like that they have to be independent, um, is not the reality for most of us. And it's not a reality we should oppose on other people. Um, the other one is to stop listening to people like me. And I'm joking, but I'm not joking. Um, I've been involved in the system professionally since, since the 90s. Um, and if I have anything useful to say, most of the time it's because I've never stopped listening to people with lived expertise, experience in the system. And, you know, that operates on an individual case level and that operates on a systemic level. And in both of those, we are, we need to work um, to improve, you know, listening, you know, we've already mentioned legal rep is representation is an avenue for that. But um, in an individual case level, you know, really listening and setting up and empowering, preparing youth and parents to, to use their voices and to, to share their expertise of, of their needs. Um, but at a systemic level, we're, you know, we have, I think, long, and there's always going to be a place for it, surveys, focus groups to make sure we're, we're keeping the pulse. But we're also having this shift, and we're engaged in the shift toward youth and parents with lived expertise on decision-making, the, the roundtables, and, you know, being part of the workforce. Um, because, you know, to quote one young adult consultant, Kayla Powell, um, or to paraphrase, because I won't get it perfect, is the people that are closest to the issues are the closest to understand them and to come up with solutions, but often don't have the power. So we can change that. That's not something, there's nothing stopping us from doing that. And I mentioned some other grants, and uh, you know, a lot of those, those grants, the uh, and the third one is the Quality Improvement Center on Family-Centered Reunification. That's another one that really builds in that um, youth and family voice, um, as well as the first two I mentioned. And that one's looking at holistic family-centered reunification services and supports. You know, Scott, if I could just add on, I appreciate what you just said in terms of, again, listening to people with lived experience. Um, I use the language alumni as myself, a, a person who has been in the foster care system. So, you know, just to build on that, you know, more and more, and over time, you see this happening more and more. And I think engagement of, of, of those of us who've been in the system can only improve what we're doing because you're hearing from the people with that lived experience. And I always make a distinction and not that we're necessarily, I'm an expert in child welfare because I've been in foster care, but I have expertise and experience about my own uh, life and what happened that you can't get anywhere else. You can't read this in a book and, and get this, that there's some expertise that I have just based on my own lived experience. Um, and then you have those of us who have that and the some odd years in child welfare. So those voices are really important. And over the years, I have heard it over and over again. And you see it in, in several studies that talk about this, that young people want to go home. If they can go home, they want to, most young people are not volunteered to stay in foster care. No, if they can go home, they want to go home, or at least at the end, if it's not home, adopted out of the foster care system. Um, and so over the years, I've seen that over and over again. In fact, there's several studies that talk about um, 
And in fact, if you're a good social worker, you know this, when kids leave care, whether it's a, you know, a formal reunification or when they turn 18, guess where they go? They go back home or they go to a relative because that is family. And sometimes there's a quote that says, sometimes we don't even know why we want to be with our family. It might be dysfunctional. It might be, but it is still our family. It's our right to be with them and we want to be with them. And so where we can continue to listen to the voice of young people who've been in the foster care system, um, uh, lived experience, foster parents, resource parents, um, um, kinship caregivers, that's going to be the way to move in the future. And I think that's happening more and more. So I appreciate just being just even involved in this conversation based on someone with lived experience um, who, who was adopted, by the way. Somebody said, well, weren't you adopted? What about this reunification stuff? I said, first of all, I'm about young people not living in the foster care system. And whatever way they can leave foster care, they should. And we should always look at reunification first. That should be our first goal. And it is our first goal. So why not look at that? So even as an adoptee, I'm supporting the reunification 110% as well. So I just appreciate an opportunity to uh, be a part of this podcast. And thank you guys as well. And it's a conversation that uh, that will continue. We know we're going to be having uh, other episodes down the road looking at, you know, executing reunification, you know, even at the at the at the jurisdiction level, even at the uh, you know, the grantee uh, level as well. So it's a conversation that will continue. But for now, at least for for this part, uh, Mimi Laver, Scott Trowbridge, Chauncey Strong, thank you guys so much for not only your work together uh, that we know continues in other areas, but uh, focuses folks on helping to to strengthen those families and and reunify. And, and as Chauncey said, you know, kids want to be home. Uh, and so I appreciate you guys for not only the work that you've been doing for for decades. Uh, but also spending time with us here on the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. If you head over to this episode's webpage, we'll have a number of links, both to Information Gateway resources surrounding reunification, including working with parents. And this includes parents in in many different situations, such as recovering from substance use, dealing with health issues, parents who are incarcerated, or, or parents affected by domestic abuse, along with resources for families themselves working toward reunification. We will also link you out to the Reunification Month website from the American Bar Association, which has plenty of stories, as we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, that you can share with families and also tools for professionals as well. We'll also have a link to the All In for Reunification 2021 webinar for foster care managers about Reunification Month and the importance of honoring families in their states and professionals who assisted them in reunifying families. Now, the webinar features our three guests, Chauncey Strong, Scott Trowbridge, and Mimi Laver. And while Reunification Month, again, is June, and a lot of the discussion focuses around Reunification Month, the actions to make reunification a goal along with promoting and highlighting reunification, is a year-long and, and frankly, lifelong activity. A reminder to please subscribe to the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. We always appreciate your five-star reviews, but most importantly, we appreciate your time, your willingness, and your energy towards strengthening families. Of course, you can head on over to childwelfare.gov and visit Information Gateway for the best practices, reports, data, information for families all surrounding foster care, adoption, reunification, and the prevention of abuse and neglect. 
So if you're a professional in the field looking for something in particular, or you have an interest in foster care or adoption, you can also reach out to our information support services team at info at childwelfare.gov. So look out for future episodes focusing on reunification in practice. But that is it for now. Thanks so much for listening to the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. I'm Tom Oates. Have a great day. Thanks for joining us for this edition of the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. Child Welfare Information Gateway is available at childwelfare.gov and is a service of the Children's Bureau, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Administration for Children and Families. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Information Gateway or the Children's Bureau.